You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe from smittenkitchen.com for something called the Fake Shack Burger. Last time I incubated a future generation of my family, my OB's office, a place you cumulatively spent a spectacular amount of time over the course of 40 weeks, was diagonally across the street from the Upper West Side Shake Shack, and I only ate there once. I understand if this means that we can no longer be friends. I'm personally embarrassed to know this about me, too. Where were my priorities? I have spent years mourning this missed opportunity to not only eat a weekly Shack Burger, but to have made better use of my last weeks of kid-friendly, leisurely lunches for years to come. The reason is even less sympathetic. I didn't like hamburgers, or so I thought. They were so thick and so dauntingly large and one-note, so soft and damp inside, I couldn't for the life of me imagine what made them popular. In the final week before my firstborn was given an eviction notice, my husband joined me for an appointment and afterwards gently pulled me in the direction of the Shake Shack. It was in the middle of the weekday and there was barely a line, if you can imagine something so absurd. I settled in for a burger and fries and can I pause for a moment? I'm getting verklempt, you guys. I had a moment and that moment was a realization that I didn't dislike burgers. I disliked those monstrous things that were all the rage a few years ago. This burger was totally different. Thin, unevenly shaped, craggy edged with salty, crispy bits, and it sat on a tender toasted bun with a perfect sauce, thinly sliced pickles, tomatoes, a ruffle of lettuce, and yet wasn't too tall to eat a bite out of without unhinging my jaw like a snake that swallowed a goat. Okay, I'm sorry, the second reference in one month, I can stop any time. It wasn't so massive that I had to take a nap when I was done. It was my first smash-style burger, and it was everything. It's probably for the best that this guy came along the next week, because I cannot imagine the trouble I would have gotten into if I had had many more excuses to eat there. My current OB, 300 times more delightful than my old one, is far from any Shake Shacks, but now that I've seen the error of my earlier ways and also rather obsessively crave a weekly burger this time around, I think we can agree it's probably for the best. As one of those city dwellers without a grill, I've always assumed that we'd never make great hamburgers at home, but then in January... Epicurious published an obsessively detailing, drool-inducing, behind-the-scenes article about the making of a shack burger. And even in the throes of that first trimester of food loathing, I realized two things. One, I could totally make my favorite burger at home with zero special tools or fancy ingredients. And two, I needed it to happen. I mean, did you read that part about the rotating metal drum stays perpetually lathered in melted butter? That is the burger that is smashed into juicy, sublime submission as the meat starts to caramelize in its own fat, forming those crispy nooks and crannies that make it the English muffin of burgers. I mean, come on, right that very second. Give it or take a few months. This is my Memorial Day gift to those of us left unsatisfied by thick slabs of grilled burgers and or bereft of outdoor grills 
a perfect burger, which you can pair with my favorite oven fries, a solid slaw, glorious lemonade or milkshakes, and a big fat wedge of watermelon for a dream of a quick, inexpensive summer dinner at home with nary a fly to swat. Hallelujah. Here's the recipe, fake shack burger, perfected as written and described from Epicurious. First, I want you to read this article in its entirety, and there's a link on smittenkitchen.com. And tell me what steel you're made of if you can't get through it without booking a ticket to New York City for the sole purpose of being one with Shack Burger as soon as possible. Now, let's talk about a bunch of things I learned about the Shake Shack Burger from the article. Shake Shack serves their burgers on a potato roll from Martin's famous pastry shop in Pennsylvania, which are pretty easy to find elsewhere. However... If you take note of where companies donate and make purchasing decisions accordingly, their choices have recently been in the news. So they're only toasted on the inside. At the burger stands, they use the aforementioned rotating drum perpetually lathered in melted butter. Swoon! But at home, we're going to toast them in our frying pan. Shake Shacks use Pat LaFrieda's high-quality ground beef, and while they can't say what fat ratio or blend they use, they told the writer that 80-20 was a good place to start. I bought mine at a small butcher shop in the West Village, which uses a blend of brisket, short rib, and sirloin. 80-20 is fatty. It will splatter like crazy. But that's why God invented splatter screens and paper towels, right? The patties used aren't patty-shaped, but arrive in 2-inch tall, 4-ounce pucks. They're cooked cooked extra cold from special fridges. We're going to copy this by putting ours in the freezer for 15 minutes first. Not for food safety reasons, but when that cold puck hits the very hot grill, it browns extremely well but retains its juices because the fats haven't fully melted inside. Smashing the pucks into patties is surprisingly hard. Of course, at Shake Shacks, they have specially designed heavyweight smasher spatulas. At home, Epicurious recommends that you use two spatulas, one for pressing and the handle of the other to kind of hammer the pressing spatula flat. I did this on my first batch, and it was not terribly easy, especially with the splatters of hot grease making me want to pull my hands far away from the pan. I then switched to this insane meat pounder that I bought a few years ago, and it was so much easier. As most people don't buy two-pound meat pounders just for the heck of it, find something in your kitchen with a solid weight to make this process easier. Nobody, of course, has the recipe for their secret sauce, but I rather liked Epicurious's version, which is shared below. This makes four hamburgers. For the burgers, you need one pound of freshly ground beef, three-quarter pound ground sirloin, plus one-quarter pound brisket is recommended, but if you can't find it, use chuck with an 80 to 20 fat ratio. For the sauce, you're gonna need one quarter cup mayonnaise, one and a half teaspoons of juice from a pickle jar, one and a half teaspoons ketchup, one teaspoon yellow mustard, one quarter teaspoon smoked paprika, one quarter teaspoon of garlic powder, one quarter teaspoon onion powder. For the assembly, you'll need two tablespoons of unsalted butter, plus more if needed, four potato rolls, see note, two tablespoons of vegetable oil, kosher salt to taste, freshly ground black pepper to taste, 
four slices of cheese, American or whatever you like on burgers if you're making cheeseburgers, four one-quarter inch thick tomato slices, thinly sliced pickles if desired, and four burger-sized pieces of green leaf lettuce. I used curly green leaf lettuce. You're going to prepare the meat. So form the meat into four equal-sized four-ounce meat pucks, roughly two and a half inches thick. Place them on a plate lined with plastic wrap or wax paper and freeze for 15 minutes, but no longer. We do not want to freeze the meat, but we'd like it to be extra cold when it hits the pan. Then make the sauce. You're going to combine all of the ingredients, tasting it and making any adjustments that you'd prefer. A dash of hot sauce, perhaps. Next, toast the buns. Heat a griddle, large cast iron skillet, my first choice recommendation, or a large heavy stainless steel skillet over medium heat. Melt the butter and place the buns cut side down in the pan. Cook until the side cuts are golden brown, about one to two minutes, and then place the toasted buns on four plates. You'll keep using your griddle or skillet. Cook the burgers. You're going to remove your patties from the freezer and increase the heat to high and add two tablespoons of oil to the griddle or skillet. You'll need this only for your first burger batch. After you've made a couple or if you're scaling up the recipe up, the fat from the earlier burgers will be sufficient. Heat until the oil begins to smoke at least two minutes. When working one at a time, add a patty to the griddle and immediately flatten it to one half inch thickness with a heavy spatula and something with a weight and heft. The handle of a second spatula or a meat pounder, etc. to help it along. You'll have to quote-unquote hammer harder than you might think to flatten the patties out. A second spatula can be used to help remove the hamburger stuck to the flattening one so not to tear the patty. Generously season with salt and pepper and repeat with the remaining patties. Once the first side is deeply browned with crisp, craggly edges, about one and a half to two minutes for medium, mine were all quite black when they were flipped and yet still totally pink inside when we cut into them. It will be hard to overcook them at this high heat. Use a spatula to scrape underneath the patty and flip it over. Cover with a slice of cheese if you're making cheeseburgers and cook one to two minutes more until melted. Repeat the process with the remaining patties. And then you assemble the burgers. Transfer the cooked patties to toasted burger buns. Spread the top buns with the prepared sauce. Top burgers with tomatoes, lettuce, pickles if you're using, and immediately dig in. That sounds absolutely scrumptious. We're going to follow that one with a rhubarb cordial. It just sounds lovely as a compliment. My friend David Leibovitz, uh, OG food blogger and nine-time author, wrote a book on the iconic cocktails, aperitifs, and the cafe traditions of France, including 160 recipes that came out in March. It's the kind of book that makes you feel like you've hopped on a plane to fly to Paris to spend long, leisurely afternoons into evenings, wandering, sipping and tasting this and that something I had the delight to do almost a year ago in person. The circumstances might be terrible, but it feels like a bit of luck that he's created a book that allows us to recreate these tastes and the feeling as best as possible at home. David wastes no time dropping us into Paris at dawn, right around the time we'd be stumbling off to a too brief to be restful red eye where the lights and cafes are flickering on, followed by the coffee machines. 
Baguettes are picked up in paper sacks that will be served with butter and jam. He explains that cafes are the living rooms of Paris, places where artists and writers have long worked, attracted by the heat that their homes lacked, and the wine, and remain places to meet friends outside your too small apartment, freeing you from having to clean up before people come over. From Café au lait to Chocolate Chaud, which is hot chocolate, pardon my French, <laughs> citronade, lemonade, uh, into, here we go, Air de la Pero, I'm doing it with a Spanish accent, a time to unwind with a drink before dinner. To the craft cocktail movement of the last decade, the book is a bit of a dreamland, so perfect for those of us who desperately miss wandering right now. This was written right at the beginning of the pandemic. I went almost predictably straight for the rhubarb cordial, attracted by the use of my favorite spring stalks and by the uncomplicated ingredient list, rhubarb, gin, sugar, and citrus zest. A cordial is an infusion in the liquor, liqueur family, which are the sweeter spirits, that includes cremes and distillations. Historically, there were opportunities to use up a bumper crop of fruit or preserve a harvest. Today, I think of them as a way to celebrate seasonality. When my book arrived in early March, I chopped some rhubarb, alas, pre-season and borderline sketch, sorry, but you should seek out the freshest that you can find. And I added it to Dingle Gin from our trip to Ireland last year, cutie, easy-to-peel mandarin zest, and sugar in a jar. It's supposed to hang out at room temperature for a month, but my apartment runs warm, and David assured me I could put it in the fridge instead. It just might take longer. In fact, I forgot about it for two months until yesterday afternoon. At 5.01 p.m., we poured it over an ice cube in a small glass, finished it with a twist of orange peel and a splash of tonic, but sparkling wine or seltzer would work too and clinked our 54th day of safety inside, looking forward to making this again every spring. Here's the recipe, rhubarb cordial. Servings, makes three cups. Serving size will vary. Time, 15 minutes plus one month to steep. Source, Drinking French by David Leibovitz. One pound of rhubarb trimmed and cut into one-half inch pieces. Three and a half cups of gin, plus more if necessary. Three wide strips of orange zest. One half cup of sugar. Three tablespoons of Grand Marnier, Cointreau, or Triple Sec to serve. And a splash of club soda, tonic water, or sparkling wine to serve. This is optional. You're going to put the rhubarb, gin, orange zest, and sugar in a clean two-quart jar. Cover and shake to encourage the sugar to, to dissolve, and then store in a cool, dark place, shaking it every few days for a month. This recipe is intended for room temperature. My kitchen just runs hot, and I had it in the fridge instead for a couple weeks longer. But after a few days, if some of the rhubarb is still floating above the level of the liquid, add another pour of gin, enough so that the rhubarb is covered. Use a fine mesh strainer to strain the liqueur into a large measuring cup or bowl with a spout. Add the Grand Marnier. Pour into a clean bottle or bottles and tightly cork. Store the cordial for up to one to three months longer. 
Apparently, you can wait this full one to three months to drink it but for, uh, for proper aging, but we absolutely did not wait. To serve, pour into small tumblers with a few ice cubes, a twist of orange or tangerine peel, and a splash of sparkling water, tonic, or sparkling wine as an aperitif. Yum! Our next recipe is going to be for banana oat weekday pancakes. My favorite buttermilk pancakes are tall, fluffy, buttery show-offs. I make them on the weekend because my mom always made pancakes on the weekend, and it feels as a weekendy as cake for breakfast should. But does Thursday morning deserve a pancake just for being Thursday? I realized recently that a weekday pancake is different to me. Fork mixed, one bowl, and fairly nutrient-packed, something I could make the kids before school and feel like I was sending them out armed with essentials, and also that my existing recipes left me short. Even those very beloved oatmeal pancakes require you to have to make your oatmeal before you begin, and then use two different flours and two different sugars. I love them. It's just not happening on a weekday. I found what I was looking for in an old recipe from Gourmet that uses only whole wheat flour plus quick oats, but it's somehow not dry or heavy or even overly wholesome tasting. From there, despite that, the whittling began. I made them with thinned yogurt instead of buttermilk, which I figure more people have keep around, and they were great, but then on a whim, I decided to replace the yogurt in part and then in full with mashed bananas, and I was delighted with the results. The resulting pancakes no longer needed sugar or melted butter to work. I nixed the nutmeg because, I don't know, laziness, and as promised, mixed the whole thing in one bowl with a fork. And sometimes with help, I mean help. And there's some pictures of Deb with her kids. You can make these pancakes as thick or thin as you want. With less milk, dairy or non, I've made them as thick as crumpets. With more, they spill out in the pan and cook up thinner. It's only a few spoonfuls of milk apart. The main thing, though, is that they're great with whatever toppings you like. Almond butter and honey, yogurt and pomegranate, dried fruit or toasted coconut chips, or your favorite syrup. Or just nod on plane in your stroller in the way to school after you insisted you didn't want pancakes and then you changed your mind because you're two and a half years old. They also reheat well and make a really good afternoon snack with a schmear of Nutella on them, but maybe don't tell my kids that part. Here's the recipe. Banana oat weekday pancakes. This makes 8 to 10 pancakes and takes 15 minutes. If you don't have or wish to use bananas, they can be replaced with 1.5 cups of buttermilk, a half-half mixture of yogurt and milk, or with a non-dairy milk. You will not need the three to five tablespoons milk at the end. You may find, however, that without the banana, that the recipe tastes better with one tablespoon each of sugar, brown, white, or a liquid sweetener, and melted butter or oil added too. So you'll just have to play around with that. Uh, You'll need two large, very ripe bananas. This will yield one to one and a quarter cups mashed, three quarters cup of quick cooking oats, one quarter teaspoon of kosher salt, one half teaspoon of ground cinnamon, this is optional, one large egg, one tablespoon of baking powder, three quarters cups of whole wheat flour, milk, 
dairy or non-dairy as needed, about three to five tablespoons, and butter or oil to fry the pancakes. In the bottom of a large bowl, mash the pancakes well with a fork. Stir in oats and salt, and from here, for softer oats, you can microwave this mixture for 30 seconds, just to warm it through. Or let it stand for five to 10 minutes at room temperature. But you can also skip this and keep the oat texture more intact. It works for all of the above ways. Use a fork to stir in the cinnamon and egg if you're using the cinnamon, and then baking powder until thoroughly combined. Stir in flour, then add milk as needed. I found one to th four tables, or sorry, I found three to four tablespoons just right. But the thickness of the batter will vary with the banana size, so for medium bananas, more liquid will be needed to create a thick but not cookie dough-like batter. You're going to heat the griddle or frying pan over medium-low, and once it's hot, add a good pat of butter or a drizzle of oil, and add the pancakes in one-quarter cup mounds. You can flatten them a bit if they're particularly thick, and cook until lightly brown underneath and bubbles appear in the pancake surface. Flip and cook on the second side. Lower heat is better on these pancakes because they brown fast and cooking them more slowly ensures that the centers are set when the edges are the right color. You can repeat with the remaining batter and then eat immediately and believe me they will go fast. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.